0: Well, Happy New Year everyone Um, and uh, happy 10th day of Christmas, it's still Christmas and uh, tomorrow I'm going to get back to my desk and I'm going to get my head into gear for what needs to happen to get this new year started, but today I'm going to embrace the fact that it's still Christmas and I want to linger for one more day in a sort of reflective mode. Um, I don't know about you, but for me, the days between Christmas and New Year are always a sort of time out of time, Uh, like they don't really count. They're not really on the calendar at all. Uh, My schedule is always completely blank on those days. Nothing's really expected of me. And so I just I lay down my tools at the end of the year and I finally have space to slow down and I lose track of the days and and even the hours. Um, And I get a chance to think about what the past year has meant and what I'm hoping for the year to come. And I don't think uh, it's going to surprise any of you to hear that I'm super glad to get out of 2020. (laughs) Uh, It was easily the hardest year of my life so far, and it could not leave fast enough. And I know that some of you share that feeling. Um, Marsha sent us poem this morning by Alfred Lord Tennyson called In Memoriam and it goes ring out wild bells to the wild sky the flying cloud the frosty light the year is dying in the night ring out wild bells and let him die (laughs) ring out a slowly dying cause and ancient forms of party strife ring in the nobler modes of life with sweeter manners purer laws, ring out false pride in place and blood, the civic slander and the spite, ring in the love of truth and right, ring in the common love of good, ring in the valiant man and free the larger heart, the kindlier hand, ring out the darkness of the land, ring in the Christ that is to be. It's about half of the poem, it's, it's all a great poem, you can read the whole thing. Um, But that sort of captures my feeling right now. I know some of you share that same feeling, but I've also had some conversations over the break with four separate families who actually really liked 2020, for whom 2020 was a good year, even a great year. So I don't want to ignore that experience that I know some of you share too. Uh, Today, I want to pause before we really get this year started and think about both sides, the, the grieving over the past year and the hope that we have for this coming year Um, or the celebration we have for the past year um, and think about it in terms of a little meditation I want to call weep and don't weep uh, which is really a message I've been hearing out of Jeremiah 31 as I've been meditating on it this week weep and don't weep Uh, because in verse 9 of Jeremiah 31 uh, the Lord says with weeping they shall come um but then later on when he's talking uh to rachel weeping over her children he tells her don't weep so i want to wrestle with both of those things um i think as we come uh out of 2020 um we need to recognize uh, whether or not we ourselves have uh, had cause for grief that many of our loved ones have many of the people in this community have um and before we rush on uh to a new year it's important that we pause and um and really reflect on the things that have been lost um, if we don't grieve properly uh, then uh, those griefs will build up in us and not be healthy so kind of want to help us to do that today um, so to give a little of context for Jeremiah he has been called the weeping prophet uh, he had a very hard life and a very hard ministry Jeremiah lived right at the end of the time of the kings, when the kingdom was collapsing, right before the Babylonian exile. And Jeremiah had to consistently tell the leaders of Israel that they were doing wrong, they were still doing wrong, and they were gonna be exiled, and that their exile was gonna last a long time. And all the time Jeremiah was doing this, there were also a bunch of false prophets all around him who were lying and telling the people everything was fine. Um, So of course, Jeremiah was deeply unpopular uh, and he was repeatedly persecuted because of the message that he had to bring from the Lord. So he was a bit like Anthony Fauci, always having to tell the Americans how bad COVID really is. Um, So Jeremiah did a lot of weeping. He was weeping for God's stubborn people and what was about to happen to them and weeping over all the ancient glories of Israel that would be lost. And then after the exile happened, Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations which is a whole book of tears, to give the people language for their grief. And we're going to get a chance to study Lamentations together this year. As a church, uh, Fumio Jatairo is going to lead us in a Lenten series on Lamentations. So um, that would be a good chance for us to process grief too. Um, But Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Um, But in the midst of all of these tears, the tone of chapter 31 is full of hope, full of really bright hope. It's some of the best hope in the Old Testament. And uh, one of the most striking parts to me is verse 16, where God says to a bereaved mother, to Rachel who's crying for her children, uh, the Lord says, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. So the Lord actually gives a command not to weep. So weep and don't weep, the two sides of the story. So let's begin with weeping by expressing our common grief, kind of a bit like the way Jeremiah expressed it for Israel in Lamentations. Uh, but I want to give us a modern version for a new year. And uh, I myself am not great at this, so I'm going to borrow from somebody else. Uh, this is a really excellent book called Every Moment Holy. Uh, it's a sort of modern prayer book. It's by Douglas Kane McKelby, published in 2017. Uh, I love this book so much. I can't recommend it highly enough and uh, he has a liturgy in it called a liturgy for those who weep without knowing why and I'm going to read to you the whole thing Uh, it's about it's going to take about seven minutes it's about seven minutes long Um, so that's gonna be about half my time Uh, and I want you to enter into this prayer as a sort of meditation for your own soul um, at the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. There is so much lost in this world, O Lord. So much that aches and groans and shivers for want of redemption. So much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, even in our own hearts. Even in our own hearts, we bear the mark of all that is broken what is best in this world has been bashed and battered and trodden down what was meant to be the substance has become the brittle shell haunted by the ghosts of a glory so long crumbled that only its rubble is remembered now is it any wonder we should weep sometimes without knowing why It might be anything. And then again, it might be everything. For we feel this, we who are your children, feel this empty space where some lost thing should have rested in its perfection. And we pine for those nameless glories. And we pine for all the wasted stories in our world. And we pine for these present wounds. We pine for our children and for their children too, knowing each will have to prove how this universal pain is also personal. We pine for all children born into these days of desolation, whose regal robes were torn to tatters before they were even swaddled in them. Oh Lord, how can we not weep when waking each day in this veil of tears? How can we not feel those pangs when we, wounded by others, so soon learn to wound as well? And in the end, wound even ourselves. We grieve what we cannot heal, and we grieve our half-belief, having made uneasy peace with disillusion, aligning ourselves with a self-protective lie that would have us kill our best hopes, just to keep our disappointments half confined. We feel ourselves wounded by what is wretched, foul and fell, but we are sometimes wounded by the beauty as well. For when it whispers, it whispers of the world that might have been our birthright, now banished, now withdrawn as unreachable to our wounded hearts as ancient seas receding down some endless dark. We weep, O Lord, for those things that though nameless are still lost. We weep for the cost of our rebellions, for the mocking and hollowing of holy things, for the inward curve of our souls, for the evidences of death outworked in every field and tree and blade of grass, crept up in every creature, alert in every longing, infecting all fabrics of life. We weep for the leers our daughters will endure, as if to be made in reflection of your beauty were a fault for which they must pay. We weep for our sons sabotaged by profiteers who seek to warp their dreams before they even come of age. We weep for all the twisted alchemies of our times that would turn what might have been gold into crowns of cheap tin and then toss them into refuse bins as if love could ever be a cast off thing one might simply be done with. we weep for the wretched expressions of all things that were first built of goodness and glory but are now their own shadow twins we have wept so often and we will weep again and yet there is somewhere in our tears a hope still kept we feel it in this darkness like a tiny flame when we are told Jesus also wept. You wept. So moved by the pain of this crushed creation, you, O Lord, heaved with the grief of it, drinking the anguish like water and sweating it out of your skin like blood. Is it possible that you, in your sadness over Lazarus, in your grieving for Jerusalem, in your sorrow in the garden, is it possible that you have sanctified our weeping too? For the grief of God is no small thing, and the weeping of God is not without effect. The tears of Jesus preceded a resurrection of the dead. O Spirit of God, is it then possible that our tears might also be a kind of intercession? That we, your children, in our groaning with the sadness of creation, could be joining in some burdened work of coming restoration? Is it possible that when we weep and don't know why, it is because the curse has ranged so far, so wide, that we weep at that which breaks your heart because it has also broken ours, sometimes so deeply that we cannot explain our weeping even to ourselves. If that is true, then let such weeping be received, O Lord, as an intercession newly forged of holy sorrow. Then let our tears anoint these broken things and let our grief be as their consecration a preparation for their promised redemption, our sorrow sealing them for that day when you will take the ache of all creation and turn it inside out, like the shedding of an old gardener's glove. O Lord, if it please you, when your children weep and don't know why, yet use our tears to baptise what you love. Amen. So that was uh, a prayer from the book, Every Moment Holy. Uh, I would put this book in everybody's hands. It's really beautiful. And it has very short liturgies for um, like a liturgy for the preparation of a hurried meal and then long ones like that. Um, It's very good. Okay, so that's the first side of the equation, weep. There is such a thing as sanctified weeping, holy tears. And just because we know Jesus and just because we have the Holy Spirit living within us, it doesn't dry up all of those tears right away. It doesn't make us happy all the time. But it does accompany the constant sorrow with a constant joy. And I think that's important if we feel very uh, grieved by this season. Uh, we need to remember the joy side, the, the, the um, promises of God. And this command in Jeremiah 31, not to weep, that we find in verse 16. So if we look back at Jeremiah 31, back at verse 15, we read these words, it says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And we immediately recognize these words as the prophecy that Matthew applied to the slaughter of the innocents. King Herod sent his army to Bethlehem soon after Jesus was born with instructions to murder every baby boy under two in Bethlehem and the surrounding area and that was all in hopes of killing the rival king. And Matthew describes the horror felt by those mothers who lost their children in such a bloody and brutal fashion using the Old Testament words, a voice is heard in Ramah lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So when we realize that this is the kind of weeping that Jeremiah is talking about in chapter 31, doesn't it seem kind of shocking that God tells Rachel in verse 16 to keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears? Like when I first read that, it sounds kind of callous, Would any of us tell a bereaved mother who'd lost her infant child to horrific murder to stop crying? We need to wrestle with this. Like, what is God like that he would say this? Does he stand aloof from our pain? Does he despise our tears as a kind of pathetic weakness? And we say, no, of course not. Of course he doesn't, because the rest of scripture consistently tells us that God shares our sufferings and he feels them even more poignantly than we do and carries our griefs on our behalf. We remember that Jesus wept over the tomb of Lazarus, even though he was right about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And we see that God commands in several places, including this chapter, that his people return to him with weeping as an appropriate response to the devastation of their sin. So the overall picture is that when we weep we usually come closer to God's heart, not further from it. So then why does God tell Rachel not to cry when he allowed Jesus to cry for his friend? And I think the answer from Jeremiah 31 is that these words are spoken in the context of god's good news of how great that good news is the good news that's really going to totally overwhelm the bad news the good news that nothing can be taken away that cannot be returned entirely and eternally so the end of verse 16 says there is a reward for your work declares the lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is a hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So did you notice in that verse that God promises a reversal of misfortune and it's not a different kind of good news to ease the pain of the bad news. It's not You lost your balloon, so I'm going to give you cake. Uh, It's a specific answer to the real problem, right? It's actually making the sad thing itself come untrue. And not only that, but God also connects the good news to the original suffering and calls the rescue a reward for your work. So the pain itself is actually um, purposeful. It brings about the redemption. The work isn't wasted. Uh, And those are words I think that would be a particular comfort to a grieving mother over a lost child, because along with all of the personal grief of losing a, a, a a dear soul, isn't there also such a loss of work, such a loss of investment. So in the midst of deep grief that many of us are feeling God makes promises. And right now, if we're feeling that grief, we cannot allow ourselves to lose hope in the promises. So I want to list those for you again. I want you to listen again to the promises that God makes in Jeremiah 31. And I do think these are promises that we can embrace as God's people ourselves. These are promises to people who have been exiled. Verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Verse 4 What lies in ruins will be rebuilt. Verse 5 You will enjoy the fruit that you yourself have planted. Verse 10 He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. And then beginning in verse 12, hear this spoken over you, over your own life. You shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and you shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Your life shall be like a watered garden, and you shall languish no more. Then the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. God will turn your mourning into joy. He will comfort you and give you gladness for sorrow. He will feast your soul with abundance and you shall be satisfied with his goodness. It's all in Jeremiah 31. These promises are for us and we have even better ones Besides, and we must be willing to open our hearts to receive them. So in the liturgy I just read from this book, one of my favorite parts was the part that said early on, we grieve our half belief, having made an uneasy peace with disillusion, aligning ourselves with a self-protective lie that would have us kill our best hopes just to keep our disappointments half confined. Wasn't that amazing? Amazing words. Uh, Don't we all do that in our hearts? We embrace a lie that says, I am not really made for glory. I shouldn't really expect it. And the reason we embrace that lie is because it eases our disappointments. It keeps them half confined so that when the good we hope for doesn't come, we don't get too disappointed. But that same lie at the same time also kills our best hopes. So when you hear the promises of jeremiah 31 that god will turn all of your mourning into dancing do you have trouble believing it do you have trouble imagining that god is big enough and good enough to put a real smile on your lips or a real dance in your steps is god too small to do that And if you do have trouble believing God's promises, is Doug McKelvey right that the real reason you can't truly hope in those things is that you're holding on to a self-protective lie that shields you from disappointment? And if that's the case, will you recognize that you've made a bad trade? You've given up something true and replaced it with something untrue. And the trade has only partially mitigated your disappointments while at the same time it's completely killed all your best hopes. It's a really bad trade. And if this is the wall that prevents the hope of God from reaching your heart, then Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The truth of God's word is that none of our sorrow has ever been pointless. None of my sorrow has ever been outside of God's plan. Say that out loud with me. None of my sorrow has ever been outside of God's plan. None of my sorrow. Has plan. Instead, we know that God uses all of it and intends for it to accomplish it. So this is something else I read this week from C.S. Lewis and the problem of pain about uh, the purposefulness of sorrows is much shorter than the first thing. Lewis says we are not metaphorically but in very truth a, di- a divine work of art something that God is making and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character and here again we come up against what I have called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves, though in a different fashion as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother, a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the 10th time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. God has loved us with an everlasting love, whether we like it or not. 2021 may be a better year than 2020, or maybe not, but either way, we stand firm in the certain hope that before long, our God will turn our mourning into dancing, that death will be swallowed up in victory. So though we grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We are able to dry our tears and embrace the great promises that God has made to us. We weep and we don't weep. Amen.